follow Miss Tina, the one with the snazzy purple cane. And she's going to take you down to Children's Church where you were going to hoot and holler, and we're going to try and out hoot and holler you up here. Amen? Are you with me, church? Are we going to out hoot and holler the kids? All right. Listen, listen. You guys got to help me preach. I'm not that good without you. Okay? So, turn in your Bibles with me to the book of Malachi, chapter 4. We are continuing in our series, All the Prophets Are Dead which is really kind of a bummer because I feel like we could use some, right? It, it's a shame that all miracles and, and everything stopped after the age of the apostles because I really feel like in church we could use some miracles. I really feel like in our nation we could use the move of God and, and maybe even in our nation we could use a prophetic word every now and then, right? I, I really feel like... If only God would still speak to us, if only he was still living and, and present and active and working in his children's life, man, how great would that be, right? That would be awesome. So Malachi chapter 4, it says in verse 5, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter devastation, of utter destruction. Now, notice that's the very last verse in the New Testament, or Old Testament. The last thing the Old Testament says, it almost ends like a to be continued, right? The Old Testament ends with, I'm going to send somebody, Right? Today, if you haven't guessed it, we're going to talk about Elijah. Before I get there, though, I want to kind of review what we talked about last week, just, just so we're all on the same page. What we're talking about is that, is that if anything's going to change this nation, it's not going to be us with our great arguments or practiced words or us being able to tell everybody where our theological position is on something, or it's not going to be able us typing away at somebody on Facebook who we've never actually met in person, right? That if something's going to change the world, it's going to be us speaking the word of God that he's placed in us. Amen? But the thing is, is that some people think that it's burning in their soul and it's just heartburn, right? Some, some people... Us included, myself included, sometimes, sometimes I think it's the Lord and I don't always take the time to discern whether it's not Him, right? So what we're doing is we're laying down rules and saying, okay, nothing spoken by anyone in the name of the Lord should contradict what He has written here. Amen? If someone says, I have a message from the Lord and it is an exact contradiction to this, then they don't have a message from the Lord. They just have something they really felt like saying right? So the first thing is, power should always trump preference. What do I mean by that? I like how Paul said, we didn't come to you with a gospel of words, but we came to, a go with you, we came to you with a gospel of power, right? The word of God is not just about presenting a book to someone. It's not even about reciting a book to somebody, but it's looking at what God did in this book, the things he did through people, the things he did through nations, the things he did, and saying, you know what, there's some of that in my life. I said in Sunday school, if you haven't seen a miracle, then you haven't been around here very long because we're having them happen all over the place. We're having people come back. It, it, oh, I'm looking for somebody. They're not here today. But I prayed for their hand. And as soon as we prayed for their hand, her hand was healed. And she comes back and gave me a Texas Roadhouse, which I didn't feel like, you know, that was. But at the same point, she just wanted to be nice. And who am I to deny her the, you know, giving me a steak? Um, <laughs> 
I said, you don't have to, you know, um, people like to give, but I liked it more that she was healed. That was the gift to me, was that God had healed her hand. I, I, we have these praises every Sunday of God working and moving in our midst. Power should always chump, trump preference. Church isn't about us, right? We did not come to church today to show you how nice my vest is, although it's a nice vest, right? We didn't come to church today to show you our cool new chairs, which, by the way, is a miracle. Let me tell you something. There's a verse that says, those that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. I'm not good at that. I'm not a great waiter, I'll be honest. I'm a doer, right? I'm more of a, they that do for the Lord shall renew their strength eventually when they wear out and fall down. And then you wake up and do more, right? And my wife had told me, because I, like, I was like, yeah, but I know, but the finish on the pews and some of the cushions and this and that, and we don't have the money to do it. And she's like, you know, the Lord will probably do it miraculously if you give him a chance. And I was like, no, come on. I mean, sure he could, right? But why don't I just raise the money and why don't I just do it? And yet, Lo and behold, I live with someone who knows a little bit about God, which is handy at times. Amen? Power should always trump preference. Church isn't about us, it's about Him. You can read Scripture or you can be Scripture. And we talked about the difference between Isaiah 61 and Luke 4.18. Both those have the same verse. It says, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. And it is great in Isaiah, and you love it in Isaiah. But when Jesus pulls out a scroll and stands up in a synagogue and says to these people, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor, freedom to the captives, the acceptable year of the Lord. There was probably something different in that synagogue that day. Amen? There's something different when the word coming out of you is the anointing that he's put into you and you speak it with the authority and power of someone who knows what their mission in God is. I can have a whole lot of people quote a whole lot of scripture at me and I'll just give them a little thumbs up. Good job, that was great, right? But then I have Christians sometimes when I'm in a place where I'm just not listening to God or maybe I'm being rebellious or maybe there's just so much going on in my life, I'm busy, and it can come out of her mouth and change me. Because God has an anointing on her life. Mona does the same. You know, Mona, I, I, I have stolen so much sermon material by sitting outside the women's Bible study in my office where I can hear them, and I just take notes, right? And I just, I'll take a little bit of that and take a little bit of that, and that'll work in the sermon. And I don't give her credit. I never say that. I just do it, right? Because there's an anointing on the Scripture that comes out of their mouth in that moment when you are anointed to do something. You know, there's no reason for me to be the pastor of this church. Did you know that? I am not better than anyone in here. I'm not better than Josh or Tristan or Gareth. A little bit older, right? I'm about your all's age combined and then some. Um, But what makes me the pastor of the church wasn't the vote, right? It, It wasn't a business meeting. It was because the Lord anointed me to be here. In fact, God gave me this really great job where I was in the 27th floor and could see my house and I was making all this money and Kristen was loving the checks. She's like, oh my gosh, right? And I really felt like God only gave me that job to walk away from it. Like he said, here, take this job because in a little bit I'm going to put you into ministry and I want to give you something great to walk away from. And I knew going into that.
Do I sound like I have more authority with the microphone? Right? Like it's just a guy talking up there until he puts that microphone on. Anointing is not in the microphone. The anointing's in the Lord. It's a dangerous thing to say, thus saith the Lord, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't. We need a more dangerous brand of Christianity. Right? We need Christians that it's not safe to be around. That it's not always comfortable to be around. That if you got stuff in your life, you're like, you know what? I need to kind of straighten up before I go hang out with Paul Blodgett. He's got, you know, he's got the power of God in him. He might call me out on the work site. He'd be like, hey man, Lord's been talking to me about you. He says, he needs a little bit of help with this, and I just want to let you know that I'm praying for you that it'll happen. I'll be like, look, I'm just trying to hammer this nail, Paul Blodgett. I'm not trying to get a word from the Lord, but God's word is so much in him that it's coming out even there at the office, right? That people, he ends up getting surrounded with people that he's bringing to the Lord because God just keeps putting his word in them. And the thing about God putting his word in you is if it doesn't come out, you're doing it wrong. Right? I don't care how much you read your Bible if no one knows what the Lord has done in your life. If it's never made an impact, if it's never made a change, and you haven't shared that change with someone else, you can read the Bible all day and go to hell. Did you know that? If it's not in you, if you don't know him, if it's not coming out of you, You'd worry about me if I said I was married to Kristen and never hung out with her, right? Never saw us in the same room together, right? We didn't ride in the same car together. We sat different places. You'd be like, I wonder if he really knows her. They're really married. I don't know what's going on there, right? Whenever you have prophetic in, number three, crazy is going to come, but the guard against the crazy is submission. I like using the word the crazy. Anybody ever been in a crazy service? Somebody said something, you're like, bless them, Lord. The guard against crazy is submission. We get a little carried away sometimes with the gifts of the Holy Spirit, and we should. Man, I'd rather us get carried away with sometimes me have to be like, slow down, guys, than having to kind of try to pull, right? <laughs> be like, please stand, please praise the Lord, right? I'd much rather be like, whoa, calm down. It's midnight. People have to get to work tomorrow. Stop praying. Stop calling down fire. Stop being in the presence of God. I'd much rather have to cut it off than I would have to gin it up, right? Because all the excitement in the world, and I can hop around and do whatever, you know what? None of that makes God come. None of it makes him be here. None of it brings his presence in here. What brings the presence of the Lord in the sanctuary is submission to his spirit, to his will, to say, Lord, your will be done, to say, Lord, speak, your servant listens. Do you know a true prophetic word always starts with submission? It always starts with being able to be quiet in your soul quiet in your spirit to shut out the world to just get to that place where it's just you and God you say Lord speak we think sometimes because because a good prophetic word can come out strong right a good prophetic word can come out fierce and hard that we think that it must be a big strong fierce thing but it's not it's 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 being able to turn off me right? I can give you some big, strong words. I can recite the Gettysburg Address like Lincoln, right? I could, I could read the Bible and put all the drama into it. None of that brings the presence of the Lord here. What brings the presence of the Lord is standing in here when you guys aren't here and crying out for mercy and crying out for a move of God and praying over each and every pew and, and everywhere and just be like, Lord, I need you in this place. God, I don't have the ability to do what the people that are going to come here need. God, I don't have inside of me what it's going to take to feed them, Lord. And if you don't show up and just break yourself among us, I can't give them anything. Did you know that? It's not a big, strong thing. We think it's, strong, we think it's stronger to, to overpower somebody, but real strength comes in being able to submit to the Lord and be able to move in His power and to set our strength aside and to move into His strength. Amen? 
That's page one, and I've only got three. We're on track. So with those three things, what were the three things? Power over preference, everybody needs a thus saith their Lord in their life, and the guard against crazy is submission. The guard against crazy is submission. What a weird sentence. Nobody outside this church is going to know what you're talking about if you look at it tomorrow and say, you know the guard against crazy is submission. But now you know that the guard against getting off, getting out in the weeds, getting out, you know why too, and I, and I didn't even say this, the reason is, is you're not only supposed to be submissive to God, did you know you're also supposed to submit to your brothers and sisters in Christ? Did you know that I as the pastor, my job is not to go lord it over everybody, hey, I'm the pastor, you need to listen to me, right? Got God's word, right? That my job as a pastor is to understand your needs as a congregation, to understand what the Lord is saying, and that doesn't require me speaking all the time, and that doesn't require me running over anybody, but it requires me listening to what the Lord is saying to people. You know, half the time, speaking a prophetic word into someone's life is really just sitting beside them and overhearing what God's saying to their heart. You know, if you do that, if you just go stand beside somebody, sometime in the middle of a worship service, just try this. Just to be like, you know what, I'm going to try this. Just go stand beside somebody, you know, try not to let them see you sidling up to them, right? Right? And then just say, what would you say to them, Lord? If you could speak, Jesus, what would you say to this person right now? And see if he puts something in your heart. See if all of a sudden you know when you're nowhere what's going on in their life. Because I could tell you this, if you get close enough and God is speaking to them, you're going to overhear the conversation if you know how to submit your spirit to it. The other reason submission is a guard is because we're supposed to submit to each other. Because if you're going to speak a word from the Lord, you should expect to be judged. Right? If you're going to say, you look, I expect you guys to judge me up here. If I'm saying stuff and you're like, you know what, that's, that's not in Scripture, and we're not going to turn to it, but the Scripture we're using here is in 1 Corinthians. We used it last week, 14.29, where it says that whenever you, one person gives a word, the others should judge the word, right? That you have other people with that kind of gifting. You know what happens sometimes is if you don't let people in your life that are at at least the same spiritual level as you, if you don't have people around you that can kind of see past when you're trying to blow smoke, right? Because some of us are really good sometimes. If we're, if we're kind of, you know, the big fish in the small pond or whatever, we can make it look like we've got everything going on. You've got to have somebody in your life that thinks you're crazy, right? I say everybody's got to have, everybody's got to have a wife that adores them and a friend that thinks they're an idiot, right? That's, that's what you need. You've you got to have that wife who just thinks you can do everything in the world, and you've got a friend that says, I, don't, I have no idea how you've gotten this far, right? And you just, right? You've got to have somebody that sees through that and can call you out every now and then. You've got to allow yourself to be judged by others and not in such a way that you get offended when anybody does something. See, offense only comes in the absence of love. We only get offended when someone speaks over us if we don't trust that they love us. You know, if, I, if, you, if you know I love you, Paul, I can say things that to other people, they get hurt by it. But if I said it to you, you'd be like, you know what, but I know, I know he wants the best for me. I know he's on my side. I know he roots for me. I know he prays for me. I know he's on his face for me. Then all of a sudden what I say hits home, right? I'm not going to say anything about how sometimes in church we don't develop the kind of relationships that allow for people to do that, but you understand. Because we're going to move on to Elijah and, oh my gosh, I could preach the rest of this year on second on first Kings chapter sixteen to the end. I could I could probably preach the rest of of my existence on those chapters, and, and I'm not going to have time to go through all of them. And I want you guys to this is your homework. You're going to have to read these on your own. Let's go to first Kings sixteen. Because what we're doing, we're moving on to the first prophet whose life I want to examine for clues that might tell us what it would mean to be a prophet. As it happens, he's the one prophet that we could actually say isn't dead because he was taken up into heaven without tasting death. 
And this is the, the WWE intro for him. He was the one whose prayers closed the heavens. He was the troubler of Israel. He was the slayer of the prophets of Baal. And he called down fire and fire took him up. He is known as the greatest of the prophets, Elijah the Tishbite. I always feel like I missed my call on that one, right? Why, why was I never the let's get ready to rumble guy, right? Elijah the Tishbite is always known as like the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. There's no book of Elijah. He didn't write anything down, right? Elijah didn't have this big long list of, hey, if you don't turn, bad things are going to happen to the nation, right? If you don't get your life straight, God's going to bring judgment on you. No, Elijah was a little more direct. He'd be like, hey, God's judging you now, and fire would come down, right? His, his message was a little more direct. I've never had to warn somebody and say, by the way, at the end of this sentence, if you don't receive the Lord as your Savior, I'm going to ask him to send down fire and set you on fire right here, right? Elijah was the kind of guy you almost think he would do that, right? You almost, you almost and, I, and I love that he was called the troubler of Israel, that Ahab sees him coming, he's like, oh my gosh, it's Elijah. What did I do wrong, Elijah? Well, this is why Ahab would think that. Let's go to verse 29 in 1 Kings 16. It says, in the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, began to reign over Israel. So far, so good. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. That's a good long time. You like a continuum of leadership. That's, that's great so far. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord. Oh, wait a second. More than those who were before him, as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he also took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbal, king of the Sidians. And he went and served Baal and worshipped him. And he erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. That's pretty, those are pretty big words. He was the worst in a long line of bad kings. All the other kings said, hey, we've done as much evil in the sight of the Lord as we could. And Ahab said, hold my goblet, right? That's what they would have used in a goblet. Um, but here's the thing. Chapter 17 starts out with this. Now, Elijah the Tishbite of Tishibi, of course, in Gilead said to Ahab, as the Lord, of God, as the, Lord the God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. He shows up out of nowhere, right, to confront. Now listen, whenever we get into the story of Elijah and Ahab, who do we always bring into the story? Jezebel, right? How many of you grew up calling somebody a Jezebel? Anybody ever called anybody a Jezebel? Nobody? Nobody ever? It wasn't in church where they're like, oh, she's a Jezebel. Remember, cast a Jezebel spirit out of somebody, right? Always comes back. Um, <laughs> you can't cast it out of somebody that wants it, can you? Um, Jezebel wouldn't be there except that I had, Ahab went out and found her. Did you know that? <laughs> Jezebel was not sitting inside and thinking, man, if only there was a, a nation I could go lead into Baal worship. If only there was a place, right? No, Ahab went out and found her. He wanted to make a military alliance, so he goes to the king of the Sidons, and he says, I want to marry your daughter for this alliance. But the thing about it is, is this is why God was always warning Israel about their neighbors, is their neighbors were perverse. Even the Romans would write about the Phoenicians that they were an immoral people. Romans were offended by the Phoenicians. These are Romans who, if you rebelled against them too many times, would burn your city to the ground, murder everybody, and salt the earth. And they're like, yeah, but Phoenicians, right? <laughs> Am I right? Phoenicians, 
right? The Romans thought Phoenicians were immoral. And a lot of this comes back to this Asherah and this Baal worship. Asherah in particular, and I know I'm going to do a little bit of archaeology. I know I don't have time for that, right? But we're going to do it anyway because I studied it. You're going to hear it. The thing about the Asherah was for a long time, we actually had no idea what, what they meant by that. In fact, some of the older translations won't even say they had an Asherah pole. It'll say they had a grove or a high place or a grove of trees. And the reason for that was is because the Hebrew word seemed a little weird. We didn't know quite what it meant. But what we have found out now because of archaeology is that it was an actual pole. It was an actual, like a carved thing. It was meant to represent like a living tree. So it was kind of like a, like a totem, like if you picture like an um, Eskimo totem where they would draw things in it to make incantations or markings or things like that. They would do this on this and it was supposed to represent a tree. Well, here's the other problem with Asherah worship is they worshiped God through sexual intercourse with prostitutes, right? That was part of it because the Phoenicians believed in Baal was the father and Asherah was the consort and you worshiped Asherah by laying with a prostitute. Asherah always comes in representing sexual immorality. It always brings with it that item of sexual immorality. I know we got like a mixed ages in here today, but you know what? We're going to talk to you like grown-ups because the world is going to talk to you like grown-ups. And let me tell you something. The world is going to tell you sexual immorality is okay and it doesn't really hurt anybody and nothing really happens if that kind of thing happens. But let me tell you something. Nobody goes into it that it doesn't take something out of them. Nobody enters into any kind of sexual immorality that it doesn't say, take some toll on their soul, man or woman. Don't believe what they tell you, that it's easy and it's free and it just happens. It hurts. And the people that come out of it will tell you it hurts. But with Asherah, the poles come. <laughs> Sexual immorality was a defining, defining characteristic of ball worship. And something I didn't even realize until I was kind of studying. And I, and I thought of this. Keep in mind, I, I love archaeology. I've, I've studied all kinds of different artifacts and things like that. You know, idols were almost always pornographic. Did you know that? That the idols had pornographic images attached to them. Man, how does that speak to our nation today? That, that we li literally live in a place where those of us who would never go to a store and buy a magazine that had pornographic material in it, let it get streamed into our house every single day, right? We, we would never openly go do that, and yet we always have access to it. We live in a world where it's being broadcast through the air. We talk about the, prince and the, principal the principalities of the air. Think about that with all the internet and all the knowledge, and man, what he does with that knowledge, Right? But here's the thing, and this was the thing that really got me. This is why I brought up the whole archaeology side of it. Because Israel was in a place. They were stretched between worshiping Yahweh and worshiping Baal and Asherah. Keep in mind... We read the Bible and we think of it in terms of the entire nation was doing this or the entire nation was doing that. But when you think about it in more simple terms, we've seen different heresies come. We've seen different fallings away come. We've think, seen things happen in the church that later on we came back and we were like, wow, we really kind of needed a little bit of correction there, right? We needed a little bit of coming back this way. The, the thing about this was that Satan wasn't trying to replace Yahweh worship, but you know they've actually found inscriptions where they have written Yahweh and his consort Asherah. They've actually found that archaeologically where people tried to meld the two together. Where they tried to say, because see, Asherah in Baal worship was just the wife. It was the mother goddess, right? 
And so like we have today, we have people that try to hold on with this little bit of theology or this little bit of religion or this little bit of something I had growing up, and they're trying to marry it with all the things the world is saying, and we do that whenever we can't reconcile. When the Bible says, do this or don't do that, and we look at it and we say, yeah, but everybody else is doing it, and I'm going to look like a freak if I don't. I'm going to look odd if I don't. I won't fit in if I don't. I won't have the approval of people if I do what this says. And then all of a sudden what we do is we say, well, that much of it is okay. And we let that much of it in. And the same thing was happening to Israel. At the time, a man named Elijah the Tishbite shows up. Because see, a prophet shows up whenever an Ahab arises. Whenever the immorality starts arising. Because the first thing I want to tell you is that a prophetic word is a specific cure to a specific poison. That as society begins to go this way, as Israel begins to fall into idolatry, as Israel begins to fall into this idol worship, God has a plan and he raises up a man called Elijah the Tishbite. Do you know Romans says that where sin abounds, grace does much more abound because every time we try to outsin the grace of God, he raises up more grace in our way. Every time we try to outrun the grace of God, he runs faster and you can run as far as you want, but as soon as you turn back around, he is right there. You cannot outrun or outsin the grace of God. And he will raise in your life, he will raise in your family's life in Elijah. Whenever the society starts to come in, you know that verse that says, when the enemy comes in like a flood, the Spirit of the Lord raises up a standard against him. Do you know where the comma is in that verse? There's not one. They didn't have commas in Hebrew. You can actually translate it one of two ways. You can say when the enemy comes in like a flood, the Spirit of the Lord raises up a standard against him. Or you can say when the enemy comes in, then like a flood, the Spirit of the Lord raises up a standard against him. There's no punctuation there, right? And, and this is the thing, is there's going to be times in your life if you will give yourself to the Word of God that the flood will be coming in and you will be the standard that raises up against that. You'll be the one that says stop. You'll be the one standing in front of that thing saying, you can go no further because God has planted me and until he takes me off of this face, I will not be moved. Prophetic word is a specific cure to a specific poison. Do you know why? You want to know the other characteristic of Baal? Baal was the rain god. In their, in their theology, the rain would fall on the earth and the earth would become fertile and then give fruit. So you had the earth that was a mother and Baal was the sky father and he was the one that brought the rain so the rain would make the earth fertile. So when Elijah stands in front of Abraham, the first thing he says is, it's not going to rain until I say so. Can you imagine? You see something going on in your school, in your home, at your work, and you look at somebody and you say, you know what? God has told me that until you get right with him, this thing is out of your life. It's off the table. It's not going to happen. He's revealed it to me, and I'm telling it to you right now. Can you speak with that confidence? Can you say that? Are your words carrying that power? Do you know in your heart by submitting to the Spirit of God and knowing His Word what it is He's trying to say? Because I will tell you that if you can do that, your words will be like Elijah's where you can stand and say, until God gives you the say-so, this is out of your life. Because I believe that when the enemy comes in, then like a flood, the Spirit of the Lord raises up a standard against him. We are called to be the flag of Yahweh in the city of Belvedere that says Rockford's coming this way and Chicago's coming this way and we stand in the middle and we say we will not be moved. The name of the Lord is still praised in the city of Belvedere. There's still a light that comes out in the city of Belvedere. There's still a move of God and people who praise the Lord. 
Did you know the thing that holds back the enemy on this earth is the fact that even though this morning you had every reason to stay, you came. And I know that everybody that came this morning had an excuse not to. I know the enemy gave it to you. He set it out before you. You were tired. You had things going on. Your whole job blows up, right? Everything will come against you because we have a church worth fighting against. The enemy better fight against us or we're going to take the ground back from him. He better rise up because we're going to move whether or not he does. Amen? I know, yeah, I'm point one of three. Um, I like in James 5, 7 where it says, Elijah was a man of like passions even as us, and yet he prayed fervently that it might not rain on the ground and for three years. It didn't rain. He stood up in front of Ahab and said, you've brought in your God and you call him the rainmaker. Let me tell you who the rainmaker is. Let me tell you where the source is. Let me tell you where Israel's God is. Because until you acknowledge him, it's not going to rain on this earth again. You know, that's why all those prophets of Baal had to show up. Right? When Elijah finally comes, if you don't know the story, he goes to confront the prophets on the mountainside and they all come up and they all build altars and they say, whichever God answers with fire, that is the God of Israel. And they set up two altars. I didn't mean to, I didn't mean to go to this story. I have none of this in we're, we're off script, okay? They set up two altars and they say, and, and the, the, Baal, the Baal guys, they put their, they, 500 of them. And if you read it, there were also prophets of Asherah there right? It's not just Baal. We always give Baal all the credit. Read the story. It says, the prophets of Baal and the prophets of Asherah. And they were all there. By the way, did you know they're making a living tree sticking out of the ground that Satan was making a counterfeit cross? Did you know that it says, you know, cursed is any man who hangs on a tree? That he was, always, he was already trying to subvert that? He knew that Christ was going to come and that he was going to die on a tree because it had been prophesied. He knew that he was coming to redeem us and he was trying to drive us off track before we ever got there. But you can't stop the word of God, can you? Just like the prophets of Baal, they build their altar, right? <laughs> and I love Elijah because he's such a smart aleck, Right? He was kind of a jerk to the prophets of Baal because the prophets of Baal, they're getting the praise on. Yeah, go Baal, woo, right? I don't even want to mock praising Baal. Not, you know what I'm saying? But they're, they're doing their thing. They're, they're walking around, they're shouting, they're waiting for Baal to answer. And what does Elijah say to them? Cry louder, maybe he can't hear you. You know, he is a God, but maybe he's on the toilet. It literally says, maybe he's on the toilet. Knock louder, right? And they begin to cut themselves. They're getting mad that this guy's making fun of them. I love that. I love a service in which one prophet can make fun of another prophet, and then we'll see whose God is God, right? It's not being a smart aleck if you can back it up, because when it came to be Elijah's turn, he's like, okay, wait a second, wait a second, dig a trench around it, fill the trench with water, fill, just soak everything. I want as much water on this as possible. I don't want you to think I've doused it in lighter fluid, I'm doing some little sleight of hand, anything like that. And when the fire came down, it burned the sacrifice, it burned the altar, and it licked up the water around it. There was nothing left because our God is a consuming fire. And he said, God is a consuming fire. And and let me tell you something, when he gets a hold of you, there's not going to be anything left of that person who couldn't do it. There's not going to be anything less of that person who said he couldn't love me. There's not going to be anything left of that person who said, I have sinned too much or gone too far to come back because our God is a consuming fire and you cannot out sin. You can't. Everybody's always worried about the unforgivable sin. Listen, you have to be pretty intentional to get there. You know what, the real unforgivable sin, the most unforgivable sin is unforgiveness. 
He says, because if you don't forgive others, right? And that's really a state of your heart, because if you can't forgive others, how can God forgive you? <laughs> how fair would that be, right? Let's get to point two. We're at Tintil. I can do this. Totally. First thing is, a, prophet, a, pro, a prophetic gift is a specific cure to a specific poison. Secondly, a, prof, a prophet's message is in conflict with the status quo of the behavior of the community and is always redemptive in nature. Let's go to 1 Kings 18, 17 through 19. When Ahab saw, when Elijah, Ahab, saw Elijah Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have in your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed Baals. Therefore now gather all of Israel to Mount Carmel. And this is where he challenges them. And look what it says. It says, the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. The prophet's message is in conflict with the status quo of the behavior of the community. It means when God usually gives someone a prophetic message, it goes against what everybody else, the conventional wisdom is. I think of it like this. We went on a cold-weather camping trip once, and there were a bunch of us guys, and we were all college age, except one person wanted to take their kid with him. He was about 12 years old, and we said, sure, he can come with us. And so we're camping there, and, and, and while we're there, this is on the James River in southwest Missouri, and there's this bluff hanging over the river, and the guy that owns the property comes out when we're around the campfire, and he says, yeah, that bluff, the Osage Indians used to uh, stand up there and do lookout, and when the Cherokee Trail of Tears came through here, they would come down and gather my family because raiders would break off from the Trail of Tears, and they would come down and gather our family and take them to the Osage camp until the Indians passed by, and then they would bring them back down, and so we spent all night looking at that bluff thinking, well, we got to go to that bluff, <laughs> right? We got to get up there to that bluff. We got to see what this looks like. The problem is, and this is something I don't know if you northerners understand, we're in a place of headwaters here. You know, it kind of confused me when I came here and, and they build houses on the river. You know, in the Ohio River, where I, where I grew up around, there's like this floodplain and then a flood wall, right? Because what happens is, you know, all that snow we get here, it melts and it goes into the rivers and they all collect into the rivers. And the further down the river you go, the bigger the river gets. There'd be times when the Ohio would flood its banks and we hadn't seen any rain because here in the place of headwaters, all the water would flow down. Well, the James River, because this was in November, was swollen. But we had to get across the river to get to the bluff. So, my friends went across, I had the 12-year-old with me, and I was like, well, i got to get him across, and i got to get across this river, how are we going to do it? So I took a staff, and I put him over my shoulder, and I started walking through the river. And the river was so strong that it almost pushed me over. At one point, he was no, the river was this high, and he was no more further, and I had to keep planting it, and walking, and planting it, and walking to get across, and I felt that current trying to push me, trying to sweep me. Do you know when you have a prophetic word, sometimes it feels like that? It feels like the reason you can't say it is this isn't what people do. This isn't how they think. This isn't what they believe. This doesn't go along with what everybody's saying, but there are times when you've got to get in that river and you've got to plant your staff and you've got to take a stand and you've got to say this is where God put me and you've got to have the confidence in your relationship with God and in the knowledge of his word to know that this is where you make your stand. We make our stands in dumb places. Did you know that? We take stands over stupid stuff. Listen, I love you guys, but fighting over politics, it's, it's not, it's not going to get your life where you want it to be. Listen, I, I have the same feeling about all politicians, um, <laughs> in that they will only ever help me on accident. That's, that's my view on politics. A politician will only ever help me on accident, right? And I, take that on, I, I put that at both parties, because as a preacher, I will never let my politics stand in the way of me delivering the word of God, either to a person or in front of a congregation. 
But sometimes the news media will get you worked up and get you in a frenzy and they will get you to spend your passions on things that will not advance the kingdom of God. Did you know that? Did you know their whole, their whole purpose in life is not to deliver accurate truth to you, it's to deliver the thing you'll look at, right? And you know what everybody looks at? A car wreck, right? The reason car wrecks slow everybody down is because we all got to make our own little assessment as we go by, right? Well, he hit him pretty hard. He must have been going 50 miles an hour. Well, the bumper's over there, and this is over there. I bet they came in like this. And, and we're doing this as we're driving by, right? And that's why there's 73,000 cars behind us, because each one of us has to make that assessment. The news knows this. They say there's something attractive about a tragedy, and if I put a big enough car wreck out in front of people, they're going to click on my link. They're going to watch my channel. They're going to spend their passion and their anger on things that do not advance the kingdom of God. The world wants your passion. The world wants your anger. The world wants you to spend it on what they have. Did you know that? God says, I've got something better for you. I want you to be a prophet that stands in the river and plants his staff and says, thus saith the Lord, and this is what I know God has put in my soul, and this is what I know is going to advance his kingdom, and that's what we're focused on. We're on the third point. See, I told you I'd get there. We're going back to Malachi. Malachi chapter 4. The prophetic word precedes the Redeemer. When it says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord. One of you Bible scholars out there, who was Elijah the prophet that comes back? John the Baptist. Right? Now, they asked John, John, are you Elijah? And John says, no, because what they were asking him, are you the reincarnated Elijah? And John's like, <sighs> you know, you almost seem like, no, right? But he had the spirit of Elijah in him, right? Because what was John's mission? To make straight the way of the Lord. The reason why I want to drill it into you guys, it is so important for a prophetic word to come out of you, is because you've got some lost people in your life and their way is crooked, and it is bent, and it is filled with trials and thorns and tribulations that they cannot make it through. There are people in your life that want to hear from God. They want to know this God that is pulling at their heart, and they have no way to get there because no one has made that path straight. That God sets the prophet to prepare the way of the Redeemer. That John comes in because Jesus is coming. That Elijah comes in, Elijah comes in because Elisha's coming. Do you know that because Elijah was the guy that would stand up to Ahab and because Elijah was the one that was despised by the king, Elisha was a man who advised them? Did you know that the person that he passed his mantle on to didn't have to hide in caves but walked openly performing twice the miracles that he did because someone else prepared that way for him? Someone else said, I'll be the one that stands up and takes the brunt of rejection. I'll be the one that stands up and says the uncomfortable thing and makes the uncomfortable stand. And then the ones that come after him were able to walk in an anointing that even he could not know because he had prepared the way. Did you know that sometimes God is putting an anointing in your life to prepare the way for somebody else? Because there are people who will not make it into the kingdom of God except you prepare that way for them. Did you know that? Because you are a specific antidote to a specific poison. That things have happened to you in your life 
that were unfair, that were ungodly, that shouldn't have happened to anyone, and they are in your life. But let me tell you what that is. That has taught you to be a specific answer to a specific poison so that the other people who have fallen into that area, who struggle with that thing, who can't seem to get out of it, God has taken you through it so that you can make straight the way for them, so that you can prepare them for redemption, so that you can show them that your Redeemer lives and He is a soon-and-coming King and He can change their life too. Where's Lena? Can you come play for me? Play for the Lord. The prophetic word will turn the hearts of the Father to the children and the children to their Father. It says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the father to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. Lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. We don't talk about this much, but you know, Israel rejected Jesus. They rejected the Messiah. They crucified him. And after Jesus rose again, many believed on him. Thousands believed on him. Scores believed on him. But there were still those who kept the temple sacrifice, that kept the daily ritual of the temple. They kept the dead religion even after the Spirit of God had gone because to them that's what they were meant to do. And the ones that missed the Redeemer, in 70 AD the Romans came in and they wiped the place out. They burned it to the ground. Jesus said not one stone will be laying on top of another. And in 70 AD the Romans did that. Because a prophet will come before redemption or will come before destruction. If Nineveh hadn't repented, Jonah would be preaching to a hole in the ground because God would have destroyed it. A prophet comes before redemption or destruction. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. And just take a moment for the Spirit of God to speak to you.